Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. Today, we're going to tell you guys about the Los Feliz Murder Mansion. So pour yourselves a strong cup of coffee, and let's dive in. We would also like to give a quick shout out to listener Brianna V for joining our monthly supporters. We really appreciate anybody who is able to donate to the podcast so that we can keep putting out episodes twice a week for you guys. We officially have two supporters and we're really grateful for anybody who is able to do that. If you are not able to give financially, that is absolutely fine. We completely understand. But if you can do your part in sharing the podcast with friends and family on your social media platforms, that does a lot for us. Giving us reviews on Apple Podcasts helps us out a lot. So if you guys can do any of that, we greatly appreciate any support that we are getting from you guys. Thank you. This was actually a case suggestion that came to us on Instagram from Mary L and Kim C. So thank you guys so much for your case suggestion. They also wrote a blog post about it and we will talk about that later in the episode. So thank you guys. What is known today as the Los Feliz Murder Mansion was built in 1925 by Harry Shoemaker who lived in it until he died in 1932. In the 1950s, the Perelson family moved into the home. Located on a hillside in Los Angeles, California, this mansion lately has been known for its supposed hauntings, which is why I think it's so infamous. However, it's got a dark backstory. So as I said, the Perelson family moved into this home in the 1950s. Dr. Harold Perelson and his wife Lillian, and then they had three children, Judy, Joel, and Debbie. Harold Perelson was a prominent heart surgeon. He was also a professor of cardiology at the USC School of Medicine and an author of multiple medical journals. On December 6, 1959, Harold came home from work and it was a pretty casual evening. He had a drink while he watched his wife wrap Christmas presents. They had dinner, watched some TV, and went to bed and all seemed well. However, early the next morning on December 7th, around 5 a.m., Harold was awake and reading his copy of Dante's Divine Comedy. Which I'm going to give you guys the brief overview of kind of what this book is about. I am going to read directly from a Wikipedia page the description because I personally and Abby has not, we've not read the Divine Comedy book. So this is just the description that's coming straight from the Wikipedia page. And it says, quote, the narrative takes as its literal subject the state of souls after death and presents an image of divine justice meted out as due punishment or reward and describes Dante's travels through hell, purgatory, and paradise or heaven, end quote. This book is found sitting out open to a specific passage. And the passage is, quote, midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within the forest dark for the straightforward pathway had been lost, end quote. So Harold leaves his book open to this passage and goes into his toolbox and picks up a ball peen hammer. He then goes into him and Lillian's bedroom where he proceeds to bludgeon her to death with that hammer. Harold then went over to 18-year-old Judy's room where he struck her with that same hammer and she woke up and was struggling and screaming and fighting with him. And then 
13-year-old Joel and 11-year-old Debbie, the other two children, heard this going on and came out of their rooms and Harold saw them and told them to go back to bed and that it was just a nightmare. I never understand in these situations. I think I see it more on movies maybe, but it also happens in real life where parents are doing something brutal and they tell their kids to go back to bed. It's a nightmare. Like, I feel like you can probably tell a difference between whether or not you're having a nightmare or you're awake and actually living through a brutal situation. Right. And the kids were 13 and 11 years old and they knew better. They ended up going downstairs trying to avoid it and not going back into their bedroom. So they ran off, which is good. But do you think that if they would have stayed and gone to their room like he had told them to, that he would have attacked them as well? That was my initial reaction when I like was reading the story and learning about it, because it sounds like he was kind of, you know, on this rampage. And I can imagine that he was trying to subdue Judy and then, in my opinion, likely would have went over there and harmed the younger children as well. I don't know that for sure. Of course, nobody does. But personally, I believe so. I just know we've seen before where parents will attack adult children or older children. They will sometimes spare the younger children. So he might have been trying to spare them by saying, go back to your room like you didn't see anything. You're basically you're safer in your room. He also might have just gone completely crazy and murdered them as well. During this, Judy was able to escape and she ran to a neighbor's house, uh, the home of Marshall Ross, who had actually already heard the screams and had notified police as soon as Judy got there. Marshall then went over to the Perelson's mansion and went inside. And this is where he saw Joel and Debbie on the first floor and told them to leave the house. And he went upstairs and ran into Harold, who was clearly agitated and acting a little irrationally and Marshall told him to go lie down and then left the house. Hang on. He has just murdered his wife and bludgeoned his daughter. And this guy's suggestion is lie down, relax for a minute. I think he was trying to just calm him down so that it didn't escalate. I'm going to go ahead and give Marshall the neighbor of the year award for going over and getting the other kids though. What a champ because I would have been nervous. I second that award. I just, I don't know the appropriate thing to do. Probably take a a baseball bat and knock him over the head, get him to lie down that way. But I feel like when people are in that sort of angry state and they're really riled up and agitated, I feel like it's kind of hard to reason with them and to even get them to hear the words that you're saying. Right. I think he he obviously did an okay job. I think if he would have showed up with a weapon, that could have escalated the situation. But also that's risky. Yes, very risky. I don't know that there was a right thing to do in this situation. I think the best thing that he could have done is get those children out of the house. And that's exactly what he did. Other than that, I mean, he honestly could have left at that point in time. The fact that he stayed and tried to reason with him is super brave on his part and really heroic almost. But I just think it's a little strange that his just immediate thought was go lie down. I would have maybe said calm down. Do you really want to tell an agitated person to calm down, though? Do you really want to tell an agitated person to lie down? I think I would take... Has someone ever told you to calm down when you're mad? They're dead, but yes. Exactly. (laughs) Like, that's the worst for... Calm down. It worked out, guys. It worked out. I'm not killed anybody, but... Okay, that's... You know what? That's fair. I'll give it to you. I just... When you said it, it just kind of made me feel a little like... I don't know how to explain myself, It's definitely a a unique situation. Yeah. That's what we're getting at. The mystery has been solved. 
Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. So Marshall exits the mansion and police and ambulances arrive. They take Judy to the hospital where she had suffered fractures to her skull, but she does ultimately survive. Police go into the home to try and find Harold and arrest him. However, when they get there, they find Harold deceased in one of the bedrooms. He had swallowed a bunch of pills and committed suicide. Next to his body was the hammer, the empty pill bottles, and the copy of that book that we had talked about earlier. Why did he gather all of that up before going and taking his cocktail of pills? My assumption is he just kept the hammer with him. The book was probably already laying wherever he decided to commit suicide, and then the pill bottle would be there after he swallowed them. I don't think he went around and collected them as much as they were just with him. Something that's kind of weird about this case is like, Wait, just one thing? Because I think this whole case is a little weird. (laughs) One of the things that's really weird about this case is that it's a little odd. It's a little out of place. A lot of the neighbors say that they seemed like a pretty stable family. There's reports that there were some financial issues going on, but nothing extreme enough that you could have guessed that he was going to just try to murder his family with a hammer. It was pretty unexpected, which Erica, I think, found a couple of things about their possible financial issues. According to some people in their life, there was apparently a partner that had stolen the rights to a medical device that Harold had designed and that he had come up with. And apparently he'd put thousands of dollars into developing it. And then this person just kind of like pulled it out from under him and took the rights. And so he lost a lot of money out of this. He ended up going into a legal battle. And apparently at the end, he only won $23,956. That seems like a substantial amount. And mind you, this was in the 50s. Basically, if this happened in the 1950s, I don't know exactly when this was stolen from him and when he went into the legal battle, but him winning $23,956 in 1950 would be equal to, in 2020, $258,674.10. Here's the thing, and this is something that drives me nuts with this case. They keep talking about financial issues, like homie. You were rich. Like, he was loaded. And even even if they were struggling, this mansion could have sold for a significant portion of money. Okay, I have two comments about this. One, how insane is it that in 70 years this inflation has gone up this much? Over $200,000. The other thing is, if you gave me $258,000, I would say thank you and move on. I don't know that I would be... He only won $250,000. I guess it's really questionable and you could take it into consideration depending on how much money he had spent in creating this and designing it and all of that. And so how much money did he lose? But it says that he ended up winning that much and apparently he ended up losing he hemorrhaged more money is what it was what it was worded as so he might have lost some i guess in the end when you calculate all of the things together the bills the lawyers Mm -hmm. the court fees 
I guess that's a fair point. I do wonder how much he actually lost on the other side of it. It does say, though, he won that in the end. So in the end, does that mean after all the fees are done, that's what he won? I have no idea. I would like to see copies of his financial records. We'll obviously post some photos of the house, but it's a pretty big house. And especially, you know, considering he was a pretty prominent doctor, surgeon, professor. He owned some patents. Like, he was well off. Well, and the other thing, so not only that, but I have another financial thing to talk to you guys about. So in 1957, Judy and her siblings were actually in a car accident and Harold ended up suing the other driver involved. They only won enough to cover the medical bills. So I don't know if they lost the money to replace the car, if that's what it was. So there's a little bit of money. Once again, he's a doctor, as Abby said, could have sold the house. There was also record that Judy had apparently wrote to her aunt shortly before her father had attacked and said, quote, my parents, so to speak, are in a bind financially, end quote. Do you wonder if there was something more going on that just wasn't known and not reported? Maybe he was going to completely lose the house and lose, I don't know what else, but I, it, it all seems like there is something else going on that we do not know about. There have been multiple cases where the husband has killed his wife and children because of financial issues. I just don't think that that's the answer. And there was a case that we covered recently where Zachary Bernhardt went missing from his home and it was debated whether or not the mom had gotten rid of him because she was having financial troubles. And I think it's really sad that that's something that we're even considering that parents are doing. It's getting rid of their children or their family members because of financial reasons. That's really all the financial stuff that I could find. The only other thing I found was that Harold had supposedly tried multiple suicide attempts. And there was rumors that he was going to actually be admitted to a facility to address these concerns. I'm not surprised. He obviously was mentally unstable. He also apparently had multiple coronary thrombrosis, which are a blockage of the flow of blood to the heart caused by a blood clot. So it's possible that maybe some medical conditions were also a stressor for him if he had a lot of medical bills that he was attempting to pay and he was having trouble paying them then maybe he did there was a story i think i believe it was last year maybe the year before where an elderly couple decided to do a murder suicide because they couldn't afford their medical bills anymore yeah if that i mean if that is the case i would imagine that would be quite the stressor. After this incident happened, the children went to go live with some out-of-state relatives and the mansion was sold in a probate sale the following year to Emily and Julian Enriquez. However, this couple never moved in and never moved the Perelson stuff outside of the mansion. And so it just sat there collecting dust and as I said earlier, it was in December around Christmas time. So the Christmas decorations and presents were still in the house and were visible. You could see them through peeking through the windows. And it got the reputation as this creepy murder mansion. And it was just really known as a spooky, mysterious place that sat on top of a hill. And I think that's a lot where the paranormal accusations come up. Today, people say it's haunted. I'm not sure how much is valid in that and how much of it is just like, it's a creepy story. The house stayed in the Enriquez family until 2015. And then 
The home was sold in 2016 to attorney Lisa Bloom and her husband for $2.289 million. They had plans to renovate the property and started to make some changes, but ended up putting it up for sale again for $3.5 million, and it just recently sold. That's some insane amounts of money. If we bring back up that inflation calculator and look at that again, though, so the house in 1959 would have been worth approximately $277,533. So it would have been a decent amount of money where, like Abby had said, if they were in some major financial troubles, it would have been a good chunk of change if they had sold it. If it was something where it was pride and they wanted to hold on to it, then I guess I can see why they continued to hold up, uphold that standard and go through that. But it's just, it would be unfortunate if they felt like they couldn't afford it, but felt like they were forced to uphold this standard. So like Abby said, there was a terrible crime, obviously, that occurred here. But there's also a lot of people that feel like this place might be haunted and that you can see figures in the windows and things. So that actually leads me to the blog post that was sent in by listeners Mary L. and Kim C. And the blog post I'll actually put in our description so that if you want to go check it out, you can. But it is dearkimberlyblog.wordpress.com if you want to go check it out. She wrote a really great post about this, and it's really kind of interesting to read through her experience. But this specific experience is about the time where they went to visit the Los Feliz murder house. So I'm going to read a little bit of a clip from her article that they sent us. And then if you guys want to go read the whole thing, you can click on the link or just search it. This is her post. Quote, on Friday the 13th of November 2020, my sister and I decided to go visit this house. We are huge crime junkies and this kind of stuff doesn't scare us but more intrigues us. We drove to the house and noticed the street was a dead end. So our friends stayed in the car down the road while my sister and I walked up to the house. We were only there for about three minutes and stayed at the bottom of the house near the garage. The house is huge at 5,050 square feet and sits on a 0.6 acre lot. We admired the house from the street below and were overly excited. Looking back, maybe we shouldn't have been so excited to see a house where a horrific crime took place, but we took some photos and videos. I posted them to my Instagram story and the night went on. It wasn't until a few hours later when my friend messaged me on Instagram and said, quote, there is someone in the bottom right window, end quote. I thought she was messing with me until another friend said the same thing. It was then that I decided to zoom in on the photo, and to my surprise, there is in fact a person standing in the window. The person appears to be staring at us and is also in every photo I took of my sister, but not in any of the photos she took of me or any of the photos I took of the house before and after we had our little photo shoot, end quote. So if you guys want to see those photos, they are a little creepy. If you want to go see them, you can check them out, like I said, on her blog post. She does have a couple photos on there. I'm not going to post them on her social media because they are hers. But there is two photos that are taken um, with the timestamp before 53 and are taken seconds apart. And in one photo, you can see a figure in the window. And in the other photo, the figure is not there. 
So if you guys want to check that out and look into that, those are some of the things that I was finding when I was looking up why people believe that it's haunted. I couldn't find any super specific stories or anything, possibly because a lot of people haven't lived there and there hasn't been a lot of people visiting the place. I'm assuming a lot of the suspicion and speculation to the fact that the house could be haunted comes from the fact that it has a really horrific past and the fact that maybe even that family had lived there for so long and they were so spooked that they couldn't stay there. I think it's probably a combination of the two. So yeah, we just want to give a shout out to Mary and Kim for suggesting this case for us and definitely go check out their blog post. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. 